Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. This today is going to be some prophecies from Ezekiel. So as we pointed out, he's in Babylon. He's been prophesying from Babylon. Um, one of the things that's been similar between Jeremiah and Ezekiel's prophecies is that they have been repeatedly encouraging people from Jerusalem to settle in. As weird as that may sound, their encouragement has been, God has been saying, this is my judgment, just, just live with it. I will give you prosperity even in Babylon. I will take care of you if you will just sort of submit to my judgment, which means be good citizens of Babylon. Don't become enamored with it because I'm going to pull you back out of there at some point, but do be good citizens and, and don't be always pining away to go back to a Jerusalem, which isn't, isn't, doesn't exist right now. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel have been prophesying that. The problem is there have been numerous prophets who have been prophesying exactly the opposite, who have been saying, hey, don't settle in. You know, we're going to be back in Jerusalem very soon. It's all going to be okay. And um, so it's kind of important to see that dynamic. We see that come up here again in Ezekiel's prophecies. So here we are, Ezekiel 33, verses 21 through 33. And he gives us a marker here. He says, in the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. So here we are, Ezekiel is here, and, and this, this someone who's escaped from, from the destruction of Jerusalem has finally made it to Ezekiel, and we, we, given the dates he gives us here, it's been about six months since what we read in Jeremiah. So, this, this, so uh, that is from when Jerusalem fell. I don't know how long it is from when Jerusalem fell to when Jeremiah got taken to Egypt. It could be around the same time. That could also be about the six-month mark. But as far as Jerusalem's falling, it's been about six months. Finally, this refugee who's escaped from Jerusalem gets to Babylon, which is sort of an irony because if he hadn't escaped, he would already have been in Babylon by this point. But for whatever reason, he escapes and comes to Babylon on his own. And um, he shares with Ezekiel that the city has fallen. And um, we also know, given the time marker that Ezekiel gives us, that this is about seven years since Ezekiel was exiled and began prophesying in Babylon. So it's kind of gone. You, you thought it's been a long time for us, but it was seven years for him. We've actually gotten through seven years pretty fast. So he's been there. He's been prophesying all this time. He's been saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now it finally has. Um, so that's what he says. He says, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. And now he says, now the evening before the man arrived, so this is one of those moments where we see the man arrive, and then it's like, if you're watching one of those procedural shows, it says 48 hours earlier, and takes you back in time. And so uh, Ezekiel's saying, earlier before the man came, this is what had happened. So he says, the evening before the man arrived, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. There was this weird passage, you guys may remember, some of you were here a few weeks ago, where Ezekiel said God had closed his mouth and said you wouldn't speak. It was weird because right after that he was speaking. So it's not entirely clear what that refers to, but it does seem like this is the other side of that, that there's something Ezekiel was prevented from saying, or there's some time period, and maybe it wasn't very long, but there's some time period where he's prevented from speaking. But now, like just before the guy arrives, the evening before this man comes to report the city has fallen, nobody knows yet that the city has fallen. So the evening before that happens, Ezekiel's mouth is opened and he begins to prophesy. So it says, my mouth was opened and I was no longer silent. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed land, but we are many. 
surely the land has been given to us as our possession. So here's the picture. It's that same thing that's been happening all along. This is just before Jerusalem falls. Actually, he hears this the evening before the guy arrives. So it's actually after Jerusalem has fallen, but nobody in, in Babylon knows that yet. But the point is that God is saying right up to the last minute, and possibly even past the last minute, <laughs> right up to the last minute, that there were still people in Jerusalem who were saying, it's okay, it's going to be okay, we're going to take the land. We may seem to be only just a few, very, very few people. Everyone else has been exiled. Everyone's been killed. Everyone's been destroyed. The Jerusalem is in ruins, it says here. Here we are in the ruins, but it's okay. Because Abraham was only one person, we're more than that. So surely we're, we're still going to take the land. And yet the message that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were repeatedly giving was that actually those in Jerusalem are not going to be the remnant. It's going to be people from the exile that are going to come back. These people that are still remaining in Jerusalem are, are the people that, that were kind of the worst in many ways. They are the people that are not going to remain in Jerusalem because they've been so proud. And that's what God's going to go on to say. So they're saying it's okay. It's still okay. Right up to the very last minute, right up to the moment that Nebuchadnezzar literally knocks down the walls, destroys the temple. He says, therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you eat meat with the blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you detestable things, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? Say this to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those out in the country, I will give to the wild animals to be devoured. And those in the strongholds and caves will die of a plague. I will make the land a desolate waste and her proud strength will come to an end and the mountains of Israel will become desolate so that no one will cross them. And then they will know that I am the Lord when I've made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. So it's the same message we've been hearing, but it's like just before the guy comes to report that Jerusalem actually fell, God has Ezekiel speak it one more time so that the people in exile, because that's who he's talking to, can say, okay, it's over. We need to stop pining to go back. It's, it's not going to happen. But then God goes on and says this to Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. So this sounds great. What we're hearing is that Ezekiel's popular. He's like a popular prophet. People in the, it's like the pastor, you know, it's like, oh, we should all go to this church and hear this pastor speak. You know, people are in their houses and in their doorways and, and talking to each other and saying, have you heard that Ezekiel? He's Let's go here. Let's go listen to the message from the Lord. But God has more to say. He says, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. I think that is such a beautiful picture and illustration of what it's like for Ezekiel, what it's been like for Jeremiah, even more for Ezekiel, though, there's a, there's a popularity. And I think what it's like for some preachers, probably, there's a, there's a sense that people like them. They're, they're like, well, they play that instrument well. You know, they speak well. We really like that. We like to listen to them. But they're not changing anything. Their lives aren't changing, and they're not living any differently, and they're not applying it. It's just like going to hear a beautiful love song, but it doesn't have any application for you. It's just something you enjoy listening to. And so God is saying to Ezekiel, yeah, they're really excited about you. Unfortunately, they're still not doing what you're telling them to do. But then he says this, when all this comes true, and it surely will, when all what comes true? Well, what the servant's about to come tell them the very next day, the very next morning. God's like, here, preach it. It's going to happen. And then God says, when it comes true, and we know 
It's happening just the very next day. When this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So he opens up Ezekiel's mouth so he can speak the same message one last time before the fulfillment so that people have a fresh reminder. Wow, I guess Ezekiel wasn't just saying stuff. I guess he wasn't just singing love songs. He was actually telling us something we needed to understand, and now it's come to pass. And so I think it's intended to be an encouragement to Ezekiel, um, because I think Ezekiel was probably frustrated himself by being popular but unlistened to. <laughs> I think he probably thought, you know, why do you even come, you know, if, if this is what's going to happen? So it's also interesting that he mentions there that they're part, one of the signs that they're not applying things is that they speak of love, but their hearts are full of greed. And the reason that's interesting is because that's exactly what they were doing in Jerusalem. That was part of the whole reason for the judgment was God kept saying, you're not taking care of each other. You're instead doing whatever you can to enrich yourself at the expense of everybody else. And so to say that that's what they're doing still in the exile just shows that some things are kind of hard to overcome. So that's the, that's the prophecy in Ezekiel 33. Any, any comments or questions on that before we go on? Yes, uh, part of that, what you're, uh, what you're saying there reminds me of James and the whole concept of the New Testament book of James where it's talking about being doers of words and not just hearers. Yeah, yeah, he says a man who hears the word and does not respond to it, it's like one who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't even make any sense, yeah. Any other thoughts? Cool. So Ezekiel 34. We continue on. I think it is the same moment here, really. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. So this is, this is a common thing we've seen in the prophets is to refer to the leaders as shepherds, even to refer to the other prophets, the false prophets as shepherds. I think we see the shepherds are often the kings, the prophets, and the priests. And so here is Ezekiel, who is a priest, would have been a priest had he not been exiled, um, is clearly a prophet um, and a leader. And he's sharing about, you know, God is speaking through him about how the shepherds have really failed. Again, I suspect, it's a little unclear, but I suspect this is still part of the message the evening before, before the guy comes and says he, he failed, but it, it doesn't have to be. It could be a, just a judgment on them, even though it's already over. But this is what he says. Oh, I've got a question. Yeah. Uh while they're in Babylon, are they, even though they're not practicing their faith, are they able to worship their, their, their own God, do you think? That, or, are they so, or are they so corrupt that they don't care? I think probably the latter, unfortunately. Um, so what we see is even from the times that God says, you know, the elders come to you and they ask you what to do, and I tell them what to do, and they don't listen. This isn't the first time God said that about them. Yeah. I think to God right now, one of the messages he keeps trying to get across to them is, look, the temple's gone. Even before it's destroyed, they don't have it. So he keeps telling them, the temple's gone. I'm, I'm not there anymore, right? That's one of the messages we see from Ezekiel, that the glory of God has come to Babylon. And so he says, you know, I'm not, I'm not there anymore. Um, stop worrying about that. Here's how you can worship. You know, it's not about sacrifices. It's about loving each other. It's about it's about serving each other. So I think the way God would have them worship would be in their interaction with each other, and they're apparently not doing that. On a purely historical level, Nebuchadnezzar was fairly generous with letting people, uh, fairly generous. We're going to obviously see, and you probably, you're probably familiar with the stories, where at certain points he's like, worship me, nobody else, just me. Um, and that never worked out well for him. And he always backs away from it, and then he tries to get everybody to worship the Israelite God for a while, but that doesn't seem to take either. 
But it does seem like what we know historically is that part of Babylon's secret was their, their strong hold where they needed to be strong. And like Rome, they had a certain understanding that if you let people do their own thing a little bit, if you give them a little bit of even a free will or a little bit of real free will, then they're more likely to serve you in other places. And so it is, I think they were, I think these refugees were allowed to worship. We'll even see there's a Psalm. There's still one more Psalm we're going to get to later. We haven't read, which talks about them singing hymns by the, the rivers of Babylon. So there is an indication they were, they were doing something. Um, so it's very different from the temple worship because they don't have the temple, but yeah. I think that there is that ability to do it, but I think a lot of them just didn't care. They were too corrupt. And, and, the, and they still have their community leaders, whoever they do. The prophets. They yeah. Do. They still have elders in 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 uh -huh. that. Now again, I don't know if this particular passage is speaking to them as I mean it's speaking to them, but I think it's speaking about the shepherds of Israel, particular, meaning uh -huh. the, the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel who let them down, you know, who are the reason in some ways, or at least one big reason they were judged. There's a really, and he said that before, but there's a really beautiful moment about to come up where he's going to say something else. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to talk about the shepherds and he's going to promise to hold them accountable, which he's done before. But then he's going to introduce another thought, which we begin to see more and more in Ezekiel because things are now have come to a head and the judgment has come. We do begin to see more of the hope and more of the restoration often, often preached through Ezekiel. So he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to you. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves should not shepherds take care of the flock? And I love just the absurdity of that, right? A shepherd by definition is taking care of the sheep, but imagine if you had a shepherd who didn't ever think about the sheep, who never took care of the sheep, who just left the sheep to their own devices or led the sheep to go off a cliff or fed the sheep to the wolves. You wouldn't call them even a shepherd. It would be like, what is going on? And that's what God is saying that you guys, you know, you don't, you're just not shepherds. You say you are, but you're not taking care of the flock. You eat the curds, right? You like what you get from the sheep. You clothe yourselves with the wool and you slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You just get what you can from them, but you, you do not take care of them. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. There's some literalness to this, right? That's what's happened to the Israelites right now. They've been scattered all over the earth. They're not all in Babylon. They're all over. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather cared for themselves rather than for my flock, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. He's basically starting to say, and he's going to really dig into this in a beautiful way in a second. But he's starting to say, look, you blew it, shepherds. And so you're not going to be able to exploit them anymore. I'm going to take the sheep from you. Um, and you're going you're gonna to get judgment. And this is where he goes on to say, it's really a beautiful passage. Um, and there's so many implications to it, both far-reaching messianic, um, some of them about the restoration in the time of Nehemiah, and some of them just, I think, an encouragement that God is still invested. Even though the sheep have been scattered, even though God's judgment has been part of scattering the sheep, God is still invested in the sheep. And this is what he says. 
For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself, and that I myself reflects the, the emphasis of the Hebrew. It's like that I myself, not just myself or not just I, but it's like me, me and me. <laughs> this is what's gonna happen. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he was with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them back out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. So it's really beautiful because God is saying, yeah, the shepherd's messed up. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the shepherd. And I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to come live among the sheep. I'm going to come down and I'm going to take care of the flock myself. And I'm going to bind up the injured and I'm going to strengthen the ones that are not there. That is me. There are a lot of echoes of this that come out in the Gospel of John. John is the one who really emphasizes the, the whole message about Jesus being the shepherd. And there are those who believe, in fact, that John was a priest, that he was a, Levi a Levite, and that he would have been in the priesthood, um, but for various reasons was not. Um, in fact, that he probably chose not to be because he didn't like, he didn't like the corruption in the priesthood in his time, which makes him very similar to Ezekiel. And whether that's true or not, it does seem true that there's a lot of things that, that John organizes and emphasizes in his gospel that come from the book of Ezekiel. And this is one of those, this emphasis on Jesus being the shepherd, on finding the lost sheep, on, on being the one that will take care, on being the one that will personally do it. And we certainly see that in that picture of, of the Messiah actually coming down to take care of the sheep himself. Um, and so it's a, it's a really powerful message in that sense. Even in terms of the current, as we've talked a lot of things, I think a lot of these prophecies have dual, dual opportunities, right? They, they refer to what's going to happen when they're restored after Babylon, but I think they, some of them also refer to the Messiah to come. The thing is that the Israelites would have seen both as the same thing. They probably assumed that the promise of the Messiah to come would be fulfilled when they returned from Babylon. Um, that turns out not to be the case, but it's understandable why they might have thought that. So... Anyway, I just think it's interesting that here's this picture of, of God being the shepherd, and it does reflect very much what we know about the Messiah through the Gospel of John. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's intentional prophecy on God's part, and it's an intentional drawing out of that on John's part when he writes his Gospel. He says, as for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. So this is interesting. He's talked about how he's going to judge the shepherds, but now he's going a level further. And he's saying that I'm actually going to judge between one sheep and another. And what you'll see as he begins to talk about it is that he's saying that some of you as sheep have lived exactly the same way that the shepherds have. In fact, most of you have. That instead of looking out for your fellow sheep, that as you're all being oppressed by the shepherds, none of you are looking out for each other either. You're just doing what you can. So now you've got fat sheep and you've got lean sheep and the fat sheep are, are oppressing the lean sheep. And it's like there's this attitude that goes beyond just the shepherds that, that all the people have picked up where everybody's looking out for themselves and everybody is using whatever power, whatever privilege, whatever blessings, whatever advantages they have. And I think this is such a good message and it, it's a message Jesus gives in the Beatitudes, I think too, that, that we all have 
you know, you can, you can take any two people and the likelihood is that somebody is going to have advantages over somebody else in that, in that two people, because that's the way things happen. And that the question is, whatever advantages, whatever power you have, do you use that to enrich yourself at the exploitation of other people? Or do you use that to enrich other people, to elevate them? And of course, the big example is Jesus, who lays aside the very form of his deity to enrich us, to, to bring us life. And so I think this is part of what he's saying, that even, forget the shepherds, even among the sheep, some of you are taking whatever power, whatever advantages you have over others, and you're using them to make yourself fatter. And I am going to judge that too, says God. You're not going to get to say, well, it's not my fault. I was just a victim of the shepherd. You're also going to be accountable and because you have something that you are using to enrich yourself instead of looking out for other people. And this is where he goes on. He says, is it not, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? So it's like, here you are, you're getting to eat good pasture, but then you're not even leaving anybody for anybody else. You're trampling the rest down. You could actually leave some for other people if you're not eating it. You know, what, why are you not thinking about them? He says, is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? You drink the clear water, then you just march through the stream and you don't care about how you mess up the water for the people behind you. Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. Um, any comments or questions? We're going to keep going. There's more here. But before we, he kind of takes a turn here that I want to preserve for a second. So before we do that, any comments, any questions, any thoughts on what we've been reading so far? I think it's interesting that he repeats the same thing a couple of times and we saw that in the psalms a lot that the the form of the uh the writing is repetition to reinforce what he's saying yeah that's a big big point what are some of the specific things you're seeing him repeat um i'll judge between one sheep and another uh, that was the one that came to mind between the rams and the greek the goats yeah yeah that's a big one and I think that is, he really wants to make that point. You know, I'm not, you don't get a pass because you're a sheep instead of a shepherd. You also have a, a choice how you, how you interact with all the other sheep around you. And I will make a judgment even there, you know, and I can well, tell the difference, right? And I'll save my flock. Yep. I will save my flock. Yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Exactly right. It's really a beautiful passage. And I, and again, I love the the involvement that God has. I am going to, I am going to save my flock. I'm going to come in. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this okay. Um, and I'm going to bring justice back. That is a theme that is, he mentioned earlier on about this, that I will rule, I will shepherd with justice. And that's a big, big part of, has been a big part of all this in the judgment to begin with. Okay. But then he goes on, he says this, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant, David. Okay. Let's be really clear. There's not an Israelite that's confused about whether David is alive or not right? I mean, as Ezekiel says this, they know that David's dead. They know that David hasn't been king for centuries, right? They're not like, oh, cool. It's going to be literally David, right? Maybe, perhaps they believe David's coming back. Some people think that's what they believe, but I don't know that there's indication in, in rabbinical sources even that that's how they would have read this. I think it's much more likely that what they hear from this is a clear pointer to a messianic picture, that, that David is known as a type of the Messiah already. The Israelites already understand that what David is, so the Messiah will be. 
in very similar ways, that he'll bring the kind of prosperity and peace and, 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 and justice that David brought when he ruled as king. And so for him to say, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, I think it's clear. I think this is a moment where everybody listening goes, oh, Ezekiel's definitely talking about the Messiah now. Now, again, they may have believed that this Messiah was going to come when they were restored from Babylon. That would have been a reasonable expectation for them. I don't know that they did, but it would make sense if that's what they were thinking. That, yeah, we're in a big mess. It's going to take the Messiah to restore us. And in many ways, Nehemiah is a type, again, like David was, of the Messiah. We'll see that when we get there. But at this point, I just want you to see that even they, this isn't something we just look backwards and put on it. I think even at the moment that Ezekiel says it, it's very reasonable to assume they would have heard this as a messianic prophecy, that everything he's about to say, they would understand the Messiah is this servant. That's what he's talking about this, because we know he's of the lineage of David. We've been promised that. We know that he's going to be a ruler like David. He's been promised that. So I think when he says that, I will put one shepherd, my servant David, over them, that immediately they start to recognize, oh, this is one of those very special prophecies that's telling us about the, the hero that's coming, the Messiah that we've been promised for thousands of years. And he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the palaces surrounding my hill, sorry, the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops and the people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord. And when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them, they will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. I think the encouragement here, the message here for them is, yeah, the judgment is heavy right now, but the reality is you're still my sheep. Shepherd's messed up, but it's okay because you're my sheep. You're my sheep, and I'm your God, and I have a pasture for you and I will bring you back. Again, to them, I think most of this is a promise of immediate restoration, which does come. Well, immediate meaning 75 years, but much sooner than the Messiah. And they probably connect that with the Messiah. For us, we see the layers, right? We see that he does restore them. He does give them Nehemiah, but he also brings the Lord Jesus who fulfills all these in a really beautiful way, um, in, in a much bigger way than they were capable of seeing, and much bigger than we would have seen. It's not has nothing to do with uh, ability here. <laughs> we just are lucky to live when we have more revelation. So, but it's a beautiful passage. I love it. And um, again, the encouragement is that last line, you are my sheep. Because for a while, God's been saying, you're not even my people anymore. And I think he's, again, the restoration is coming. You're my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. That is the, that is the conclusion of this particular prophecy. It's one of encouragement. It's one of hope. Any thoughts before we go on to chapter 35? I do like how um, God is really broadening um, their idea of who he is and but still like kind of defining who he is that he is still a good God that like takes care of them but he's like so much stronger and so much more like powerful than they think because I think it would be kind of easy 
I don't know, like if I was them to be like, oh, now he's moved on to Babylon or whatever, or he's like so big that he's like really scary or something, but that he's just still like the same God and he can be both big, you know, and intimately involved. Kind of like, I really like the, the Psalm that's like, who is man that you are mindful of him, you know, kind of like that idea. And I think that's part of the beauty of the shepherd picture is it's an intimate picture. A shepherd lives with his sheep when he cares for them. He sleeps out in the field. He's out there with his flocks. He binds up the injured. He doesn't delegate that. You know, I think that's a lot of the intimacy of that picture. You know, I, I, you shepherds messed up, but I'll do it. I'll do it myself and I'll do it better. I'll do it perfectly. Any other thoughts? Well, and going back to what you said a little earlier, I like where after he addresses the shepherds, he turns his attention to the way that the individual sheep are treating each other too, because they're to, he wants them to take that individual ownership as well. It's not just, well, I'm just responding in the way that the people over us are treating us, or you know, my impact is too small. What does it even matter how I treat the people around me when the people above us are doing these horrible things? And he sort of saying, no, it matters the way that you treat the people you come in contact with, there's, there's no excuses just because of what's going on around you. Yeah, I do think that's really important. Yep, I think that's a big, a big point of what he's saying here. Other thoughts? I had a question. Yeah. Um, is there a specific um, time frame, either um, interpreted or elicited here in terms of when this change will happen for the for these people, in other words, right now, obviously the shepherds have have um, taken advantage of them, even within themselves. They have not been exhibiting um, principles of uh, uh, fairness and um, and assistance of of one another. Are they in their when they're hearing this? Are they expecting, hey, this is going to happen next week? We're thinking about uh, our next generation. Um, how, how, how do you think, how are they interpreting this? That's a really good question. And we can guess that based upon, well, there's two answers to that. One is he is going to get very specific a little bit later, but before he gets specific, and he may have already, we've had this discussion before, and I can't remember if one of the prophecies already gave us this number, but I know it's coming up later. But the other thing I will say is what we can do is we can guess that their tendency is to think it's happening tomorrow because that's what Ezekiel and Jeremiah have continued to argue against. This, this passage of great hope has been withheld from them, partly because they kept clinging to the false prophets who kept saying, we're going to be restored tomorrow. Nebuchadnezzar is never going to take us over. Everything's going to be okay. Don't listen to those prophets who are giving you doom and gloom. And so I think that God hasn't wanted to, to dangle the hope out there because it was confusing because false prophets were only giving them false hope and God didn't want to do that. So I think up till now, he hasn't really given them a timeline. He just keeps, he hasn't even, he's, he's now starting to say it will happen. We do have a couple of things that have already happened. One is that Jeremiah bought some land, um, which was worthless land because it was owned by Nebuchadnezzar and he buried a deed on it and he buried that deed. And so he indicated by that, that someday he or a relative of his would be back for that land, indicating the restoration would come. So that was kind of the first indication that they had, oh, we are going to be back here specifically. Um, we are going to get the number 75 years. And I think, I don't think we've heard that yet, although I may have just forgotten, but I know it's coming up in a little bit or next week, probably. They're going to get the number 75 years, that they're going to be in Babylon for 75 years, and then they're going to go home. And it's interesting you mentioned generations, because 75 years to them, that's what it is. It's a generation. 
when if, if, if you're if you're somewhere 75 years at this point it means that it's your kids that are going to get get the benefit so that's pretty much what they're hearing is it's going to be one generation and then we're going to be back which is really short all things considered i think that they have a perspective of history and generations which is different than ours i don't think they would hear that and think oh that's a bummer i won't get to be part of it i think what they would hear if they really grasped it was oh it's only one generation my kids will get to go back you know i think to them that's a that's a positive um, we do know also there was a prophecy made much, much earlier, uh, 150, 200 years earlier, that gave a specific marker and with a specific name that actually talked about Cyrus, who would be the king of Persia, who would send them back. And that's a, a crazy specific prophecy made hundreds of years before it came to pass. But there's always the possibility they will at least be looking for that, any of them that that believe it at all, will be looking for that. So as things begin to move that way, they may begin to get a sense, oh, it's coming up. So between those two, they eventually get some timelines. Right now, I think they're just, I don't think God is giving them a timeline because he knows they're too antsy and he wants them to settle where they are first. He wants them to, to, to be prosperous where they are and then he'll bring them back, to trust him to bring them back rather than to scramble and go to Egypt like the some of the remnant of Jerusalem or most of the remnant of Jerusalem has already done run to Egypt with Jeremiah. So, so that's kind of where I think we're at. Does that answer your question, Aaron? Sorry, sorry, I was muted. Yep, it does. Thank, thanks so much. Yeah, no worries. Um, very cool. Anything else? All right. Uh, 35. Okay, so 35, I'm going to read through. I'm not going to make a lot of comment because this is, to be, to be honest, one of those prophecies we've heard a lot. Um, and I don't have a lot of comment on it at this point, but certainly when I get to the end, or if you want to interrupt me in the middle, I am open to any thoughts you guys have about it. I'm just letting you know this one will go pretty fast because I don't have a lot of comments throughout. This is another one of those prophecies, which is a judgment against Edom. And this is another one of those that comes up because Edom is, is a relative of Israel. In God's mind, they are cousins um, because they come from uh, Esau, uh, whereas Israel comes from Jacob. And so they're related in that sense. And God has always tried to keep this sort of relationship between Edom and Israel, which was cordial. And what happens is as soon as Israel gets vanquished, Edom starts looting Israel. They just take it full advantage of it. And so there's a couple of these we've seen. Jeremiah gave us one two weeks ago. Ezekiel's now giving us one where God is saying, Edom, you're in trouble and your judgment is coming. Don't gloat because Israel fell and you're, you're riding high. Your judgment is coming, and a lot of the reason your judgment is coming is because the way you way you kicked Jacob when he was down, essentially. So, we've seen this a number of times. So I'm going to read straight through it, um, and uh, I don't think I have any comments. Sometimes I say that, and I do, but we'll go straight through it and then see what you guys think. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, set your face against Mount Seir, prophesy against it, and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says: I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins and you will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste and cut it off from all who come and go. I will fill your mountains with the slain. Those killed by the sword will fall on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. I will make you desolate forever. Your towns will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
because you have said these two nations and countries will be ours and we will take possession of them, even though I, the Lord, was there. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will treat you in accordance with the anger and the jealousy you showed in your hatred of them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all the contemptible things you have said against the mountains of Israel. You said they have been laid waste and have been given over to us to devour. You boasted against me and spoke against me without restraint, and I heard it. This is what the sovereign Lord says, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. Because you rejoiced when the inheritance of Israel became desolate, this is how I will treat you. You will be desolate, Mount Seir, you and all of Edom, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, any thoughts? And Mount, um, let's see, all of Edom, what, what region is that uh, Is that today? Sometimes I, I, probably, I can also probably Google it, but just out of curiosity, is that, do we know where that is today, or is that do, uh, not we known? We do. Um, without my map, I'm pretty bad about it myself, but I am geographically challenged on my best days. Jeff, you have a thought? Isn't it south of Israel? Because they went through Edom between Egypt and Israel. You're right. So Edom is south of Israel today, and I'm going to pull up a real map to, or a current map to see where it is. Cool. And Moab was to the east of it, kind of east of uh, the southern part of Judah. Okay. Managed. Both Edom and Moab would be in current day Jordan. Okay. Uh, yes. So there you go. And I'll take a look at it too. And I'll actually bring, I will uh, show you some maps next week, even through the Zoom. Um, we'll get back and, and look at that because that's a good question, Aaron. Sounds like uh, uh, Jordan and to the south there. All right. Uh, any other questions? Ezekiel 36, 1 through 38. Uh, Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, I don't know what this means, particularly this, there's something interesting about this prophecy and that this whole prophecy focuses on the land. And I don't know if the point of that is to encourage the Israelites that specifically they'll be back in this land. I don't know if he wants them to know that that is going to happen. They are going to return here, not just that they're going to be restored, but they'll actually be restored in the same place. Because this, this is prophecy he makes to the mountains and to the place. The other thing that's interesting is he, this comes, at least in our Bibles, and so it's possible this was the order in which Ezekiel prophesied these. It comes on the heels of him prophesying to the mountains of Edom. And so it, it may just be intended to be kind of a, a parallel here, that he prophesied to the mountains of Edom, now he prophesies to the mountains of Israel. All right. Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The enemy said of you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because they ravaged and crushed you from every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and the object of people's malicious talk and slander, therefore, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, to the desolate ruins and the deserted towns that have been plundered and ridiculed by the rest of the nations around you. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In my burning zeal, I have spoken against the rest of nations and against all Edom, for with glee and with malice in their hearts, they made my land their own possession so they might plunder its pasture land. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and the valleys, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I swear with uplifted hand that the nations around you will also suffer scorn. But you, mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. So again, clearly the idea here is, is the restoration is going to come, and it does include returning to this land, um, which is going to happen in 70 years, 75 years, as, as Meredith pointed out. 
Let's see. I am concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown and I will cause many people to live on you. Yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of people and animals living on you and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will cause people, my people Israel, to live on you. They will possess you and you will be their inheritance and you will never again deprive them of their children. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because some say to you, you devour people and deprive your nation of its children. Therefore, you will no longer devour people or make your nation childless, declares the sovereign Lord. No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations and no longer will you suffer the scorn of the peoples or cause your nation to fall, declares the sovereign Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So this is a, there's, there's echoes of this in the New Testament for sure. And I think it's an important sort of point, both for them and for us in the New Testament, obviously. One of the questions that has hovered over this entire judgment is that God has been so clear that this has been a repeated cycle. And we've seen that as we've gone through the entire Old Testament, we see this repeated cycle where the Israelites do their own thing, God forgives them, they come back to him for a short period, they have a revival because they have a good king, the good king dies, and then they go right back to doing what they want to do. They go right back to abusing each other, they go right back to mistreating each other and worshiping false idols. It just And then they, then they get judged, they come back to God, and it happens over and over and over. And the question that's been hovering and sometimes explicitly stated in these prophecies is what on earth is going to ever change that? Because, okay, here we are. This is a bigger judgment. This is a longer one, but he is going to restore them. But what's going to make that stick? How are they going to not just go back? What, what, how can this cycle not just repeat itself endlessly forever? And part of the answer that we've seen before and that Ezekiel gives really explicitly here is the difference is going to be that God is going to change the essence of who they are. The word heart in the in the Hebrew language, when in, first of all, it's not actually heart. We translate it heart because it's the easiest for us to understand it that way. It's actually bowels. It's actually their guts. Um, but we use heart the way they use bowels, meaning we often use heart to mean the, the center of who we are. We say to someone, I love you with all my heart, everything I am, all that I am, I love you. And they used to say that with their bowels. I know that sounds weird, but anatomically, it's more central. And I think that's the idea. It's the center of the anatomy. So it's the center of the person. So when he says, I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit, he's using terms that refer to the very essence of who they are. He's saying, I'm going to change you. Why will this cycle not go on forever? Because I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you different people. 
And then I'm going to put my spirit inside you, um, which again, going all the way back to Genesis is, is the essence of life. That is what life is, that he breathed into us. And that word breath is spirit. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew. It's also wind. It's a number of things. But, but he breathed into us the breath of life when we became living beings. And now he's saying, I'm going to give that back to you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to change your heart. You're going to go from a heart of stone, which doesn't respond to me, to a heart of flesh, which does respond to me. It will be responsive and it will respond to me. And so it's like he's saying, I'm going to be such a good shepherd. I'm going to take what's been impossible for you and make it possible by changing the very nature of who you are, which is a promise that must have been somewhat perplexing to them, but encouraging. Like, how's God going to do that? Um, in the New Testament, Jesus, I think, refers to it as, as a rebirth or being born again. Paul talks about a circumcision of the heart. Paul talks about, he quotes these verses, talks about a new spirit, talks about a new heart. So I think we, we do see this is very directly related to the, the larger picture of the gospel that they couldn't have possibly begun to conceive at this point. Um, but it does have an encouragement to them of this is the answer to the cycle. How do we, how does God break this cycle? He's going to do it for us. He's going to actually change who we are. And so I think that's an important sort of point there. Any thoughts on that before we go on? Yeah, they wouldn't have that idea at all of who the Messiah was. They were thinking of the Messiah as being a king or a ruler, not changing their hearts. For sure. I think this is just so much bigger than they, they yeah. were probably able to conceive. I think some idea of God changing them as well as giving them the Messiah is certainly not beyond them. But that connection of the Messiah actually changing our hearts was not mm -hmm. something they would have, I think, conceived of at this point. Yeah, for sure. And again, that's not a knock on them. I mean, who would? These are very strange things to be talking about. <laughs> so I agree. Uh, he goes on, he says, then you will oh, live. I was just. Yeah, go for it. I was just going to say, and I may even have said this before because I really like, because I this image of a heart of flesh, I think it came up in Ezekiel earlier as well. But I was just really like that the part of that restoration and being made new is that you have to become softer and more feeling almost not to be led by emotions but that 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 alignment to god is there's power in being softer right now they are hard and it feels like power but the way they're actually powerful is by being restored to like humanity no, in think, the in the positive unfallen sense of it i think that's really good uh let's see then you will live in the land i gave your ancestors you will be my people and i will be your god i will save you from all your uncleanness I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields so that you no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. <laughs> He's still at that moment when the judgment is new, right? So he wants to give him hope, but he also wants to say, don't think you deserve this, you know? <laughs> This is, this is not something you've earned, guys. Um, let's see. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns. Cleanse you from all your sins. Even that, you know, just that, that, that imagery is huge. I will cleanse you from all your sins. I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is similar to the I will be your shepherd. There's just a lot of statements here that God is saying, I'm going to do this. I'm not even asking you to do it. I'm telling you, 
I'm going to do this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, we have one more, uh, two more passages, which are back to Ezekiel, crazy Zeke, with some really strange uh, object lessons, one of them particularly strange. Um, any thoughts on this before we jump into our last passage for the evening? All right, so Ezekiel 37, there's songs written about it. You've heard this story. It is one of the most bizarre stories. It's, it's easy in the world of the bizarre world of Ezekiel, where God is often having Ezekiel do weird things. This passage goes beyond weird to impossible, right? Apart from God. And, and, I, it's and the reason I'm stressing that is because that is an important point of this object lesson. You can read this and say, well, it's just a metaphor. It just didn't really happen. And, and, and you can, we, can, we can get along just fine if you believe that, but I think that seeing this as actually happening strengthens the very point that God wants to make through Ezekiel, because his point is about the impossibility of it. And so for Ezekiel, as all these weird object lessons that we've already read him doing all these bizarre things, now God is going to do something bizarre that perhaps only Ezekiel sees. I'm not even sure if anybody else witnesses this, um, but it is, I think, to make a really strong point to Ezekiel. Now, it may be that other people witness this, and if they do, that certainly will make Ezekiel very convincing as a prophet, but I'm not 100% I'm not sure. So here we go. This is the story where the bones, the dry bones, get up and reconnect and dance around. But guess what? You may not know this in the story. They don't only reconnect, they grow flesh. They become like full-fledged humans again. So we're going to read this and, and see what it says. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. It's entirely possible Ezekiel is the only one here. Um, there is a valley in specific, and uh, I did not put it in my notes, and I'll have to look, but there is a valley that people think this might be, and it's one of the valleys, I think it's a valley of Jezreel, in fact, where there have been battles, and it's in this valley that we know that that Israelites had been slaughtered and their bones were just left on the ground. And so think about this too. Unburied bones is a disgrace. So these are not only bones, but they're unburied that is laying in the middle of this valley. This valley is literally like a death valley. It's a place where a battle happened and people were slaughtered, whether it's Israelites or not, people were slaughtered. And, and it's been years and years later and these bones are just still hanging out there and they're just dry as dust. And this is where God takes Ezekiel. And he set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Now just stop there for a moment because it's very easy to just go right on past this. But what in the world is this kind of question to ask Ezekiel? The answer I would think is no. I mean, you're just standing there. The bones are dry. I would even think if I'm, I would even think, okay, God's point is they can't live. He's trying to tell me something about something they can't live, right? So he's just showing me these bones and he wants me to say no. But Ezekiel is smarter than I am and he's been paying more attention than I have been because his answer is actually leaves room for the bones to live. He says, I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. <laughs> so he's like, God, that's an unfair question to ask me. I don't know what you're about to do. And I don't know if you want me to say, nope, they can't live and that's the point. Or if you want me to say, yes, they can live and that's the point. 
because only you know. Can they live again? Only if you decide they can live again. That's totally in your bailiwick. So this is kind of an amazing, to me, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing moment of faith because it's so un, it's, it's so effortless. It's not like Ezekiel's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta show my faith here. He just answers and is, and is I think is an impetuous, impulsive answer is one of such faith that he's just like, I don't know, God, you tell me, can these bones live? And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I suppose in Ezekiel's mind, this is no different than prophesying to the mountains or prophesying to other crazy objects that he's prophesied to. So he does what he's told. Prophesy to the bones and say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord, which again, right off the bat, it's kind of like, I guess the other people aren't hearing him anyway. So is this any different than that? This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise and a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and the tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath on them. So no breath in them. So he prophesies to the bones and they come together and they grow flesh, but they're still just inanimate. Still just laying there on the ground. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into those slain that they may live. Now, this we mentioned this before, but it's helpful in this passage even to know this. There's a Hebrew word which is translated by the translators only according to context. It's a word which is used for three different things. And the only way you know is by context. So it's the word for breath but it's also the word for wind, and it's also the word for spirit. And it's the exact same Hebrew word. So for example, when it says here, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breathe from the four winds and breathe into those slain. Breathe, winds, and breathe are all the same word. Breathe and breath are slightly different forms, but it's the same word. And so, you know, breathe, come winds from the four winds, and wind into those slain. Come spirit from the four spirits and spirit into the, inspire into those slain. Come breath from the four breath. You know, you can read it however. Based upon context, they translate it this way. It makes perfect sense. But this is interesting because this is a very strong echo of Genesis. So what happens in Genesis is that God creates the, God creates the, the, the Adam and Eve. It says he creates them from the dust of the earth. So he gets all the physical materials together. And then it specifically says, then he breathed into them the breath of life, and they became a living being. So in, in Genesis, we see that he creates them, he makes them, but it's not until he breathes into them that they're alive. And this exact same thing is happening. So this is, this is absolutely a sort of a recreation or a replication of what happens there in Genesis. So he says, do this. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. So I don't know about you, but this is, even for Ezekiel, this has got to be a somewhat terrifying moment. I mean, he's just, by God's words, created a zombie army. I mean, <laughs> here they are, and they're standing there, and he's standing there, and I just think he must just be completely blown away, because Ezekiel's seen crazy things. But again, it's so important in these stories to remember, Ezekiel's a human being. And how would you feel if this happened, even with everything else you'd seen, if suddenly this just tons and tons of bones they now were flesh and they were breathing and they're standing there and you're thinking, what next, right? 
Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. So as God often does with Ezekiel, he's going to explain this little object lesson to, to him. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, know that I am the Lord. And when I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. Here's the point. Why use this incredibly startling miracle as the object lesson? Why, why go so big here? I mean, Ezekiel has done things that didn't require this kind of amazing show of power. Why do this? Because I think what God is saying is the Israelites are feeling hopeless. They're feeling dead. And what God is saying is they're not wrong. God is saying the likelihood that they're going to come back from this and become a nation, the likelihood that they're going to come back from this and be in their own land together, the likelihood that they will ever be back to where they were, that they will ever be the Israelites again, is nil. It just doesn't exist. The likelihood of that happening is the same as these bones living. And yet when I asked you if these bones could live, you said, it's up to you. It's up to you, God. And I think the reason he's doing such a startling example is to say to Ezekiel, they are not wrong when they don't believe that they can come back from this because they don't just need a fix. They don't just need a cure. They don't just need a little help. They need a resurrection. For them to survive this, I have totally wiped out Israel. I have destroyed the temple. I have destroyed Jerusalem. Northern Israel has been gone for over a century now. So with all of this being true, they are correct. Israel's dead, and they need to know Israel's dead, because I want them to see how impossible it is, so that when it happens, when the bones get up, and the tendon comes up on them, and I breathe life into them again, I want them to know it was me. I don't want them to think, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought. They have to see how bad it is, and I think this is part of the reason why God really vindicated Jeremiah and Ezekiel and put to shame all the false prophets who said everything was going to be okay. It was very important that first everyone see it was not okay. And it was not going to be okay. And everybody was going to be dead. <laughs> and, and so that's why such a startling example, because God wants to say, I'm not a God who simply fixes things or repairs things or patches things. I'm a God who resurrects things. I'm a God who takes complete impossibilities and brings hope. I'm a God who takes what, what isn't there and makes it true. And I, this is really what he wants Ezekiel to be confident in, even if no one else is seeing it, so that when he speaks to the Israelites, he can speak that way. He can say, you're right, it's hopeless. Our God is a God who brings hope where it's hopeless. And so the most immediate context of this, the most immediate understanding would of course be that God is going to restore Israel and it's going to be a resurrection. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be amazing that it's going to happen at all. And it truly is. We're so used to the story, I think we don't think about it. But think about a nation that has been completely destroyed and then 70 to 75 years later, actually coming back and rebuilding everything, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, starting from scratch with nothing and yet being able to do it. And so I, I think we even forget how impossible this is. And that's the point of this story is the impossibility of it. And I think that's the immediate context for them is that God can do this. He can take dry bones and make them fully-fledged human beings. He can absolutely take a scattered Israel and bring them back to be a nation. Now, of course, again, 
from our viewpoint, we know this has an even more startling application in that God would say to us that all of us, apart from Christ, are these dry bones, that we're dead. We don't have the life of God in us anymore. That's how Paul describes it. He says, we were all dead in our transgressions and sins. He doesn't say God just took away our sin. He did, but it didn't just take away our sin. He doesn't say God just gave us a little bit of cure or fixed us a little bit or, or tweaked things a little bit. Paul says he breathed into us new life. He gave us a new spirit. He crucified the old man and created a new man. He changed our very hearts and our very essence. To Paul, it's really important that the gospel be seen as an incredible miracle, not just a, a little adjustment you know, to who we are, but a complete transformation, a complete change. We are new life and we have new life. And this picture of the bones fits in with that really well. And the fact again, that this prophecy comes after the one about the new spirit and the new heart makes perfect sense because it does lead into that as well. It not only leads into the, to the Israel restoration, but it also reminds us that that's what the gospel is. It's this incredible, powerful moment where we're not just forgiven, dry bones being forgiven are still dry bones, but we're actually being recreated. And it makes sense of the things that Paul and Jesus say in relation to this idea of new life. So I think that's really an important aspect that's being, again, hinted at that the Messiah is gonna be so much bigger than they ever envisioned than they ever thought. Like Sue pointed out, they had no, no, no way to conceptualize this other than the metaphorical and equally powerful truth to them that Israel would receive new life. Any thoughts on this before we have one more object lesson then we're all done? Would they have thought of that as like the Holy Spirit or would they have just thought of it as something less um, specific? Oh, I think when he says, I will put my spirit in you, they would absolutely have thought of it as the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is not foreign to them, right? That's something they've seen God put into all sorts of people. But again, would they see it as him putting the Holy Spirit into each of them individually? I don't think so, because I think what they're seeing here, again, is the nation of Israel. He even says the bones are the Israelites, are the, is Israel. And so they would see it as God's spirit, again, leading Israel. So I think they would see it as the Holy Spirit, but I don't think they would see the personal application that, again, surprisingly, Joel predicts, but he's maybe the only prophet who really predicts this clearly, and that, that then Jesus then tells us it's going to happen, which is that every individual is now going to receive the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible new revelation to the, to the Jews who saw the Holy Spirit as only being given to special people for special circumstances. And they could see the restoration of Israel being one of those special circumstances, but to see it as a promise that each of them would receive the Holy Spirit would have probably been beyond them at this point. Is this, 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 it, is an example for Ezekiel to um, to encourage him because people are ignoring him? I think so. I mean, I think it's both. I think it's to encourage him because, again, this is quite a demonstration. If you're feeling any sort of uh, lack of faith at the moment, this would be <laughs> something that you'd be like, oh, I am hearing from God. I'm not making this up. Um, but, I, but I also think it's so that he can encourage them because God specifically points out Tell the Israelites, they're, they're feeling hopeless. Basically tell them you're right to feel hopeless, except that God can breathe absolutely new life into dead bones. Um, so it seems it, there's no indication that anybody is here except Ezekiel. That's why I think in many ways it's for Ezekiel, both for his message and for his own encouragement. I think both are true. Yeah. But then he tells the people what he's seen. I think vision. the fact that we have it recorded here is because he told people. Yeah. 
So they're going, man, that guy's really lost it now. Well, look, I, <laughs> I, I, they had to at least half of them call him Crazy Z. They had to. He, he seems that way. We know he's not. But my goodness, this guy is, is all over the place. So. I like how they, how he calls it like a vast army because it, it kind of, it gives them more like, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it does give them like purpose and a place like with God. It's not like God is just, you know, coming to rescue them. You know, he is like also like giving them some, he's like connecting with them and like kind of like using them. Yeah, and again, I think it's part of the it's part of the picture of of how complete the miracle is. He's not just dragging the dry bones, you know, or just bringing them in as barely moving humans. They're not really a zombie army. That was obviously <laughs> not accurate because because they're fully alive. These bones, and now we don't know what happened to them. I think the only reasonable assumption is they go back to being bones at the end of this. You can deal with that however you want, because um, otherwise, I don't know where all these people went. Um, um, but the other thing I think about that that's cool, again, it's the vastness of it. And this is one of the things I think about. You know, I, am, I happen to be, and this is neither here nor there. Again, I, I think we can get along very well if you're on all sides of this equation. I happen to be someone who doesn't believe that God ever said he'd stop doing miracles. So I think he still does and still can. I think he does times we don't know. But I've known a lot of people through my life who have, who have claimed miracles and they've never been terribly, not never, many of the miracles I have known people to have claimed have always been... A, hard to verify as miraculous and what i love about the miracles that jesus does and what happens here with ezekiel is there's just no question you know you don't look at this and think well maybe ezekiel put the bones together you know it doesn't happen and it's not like one body it's not like hey look here's this person that was a bone and now i've made him now god made him human no it's a vast army it's all of these bones in the desert there's there's something about when god does these miracles to make a point he does them very big so that there really isn't room to say, eh. I mean, again, in Ezekiel's case, they could just disbelieve Ezekiel, and that's certainly possible. And that's why I think and mostly it's an encouragement for him. But I think it's just, you know, when, when you make someone who's been blind from birth able to see, or you raise someone from the dead, or you bring all these bones together, well, then there's just no room for the argument about was this really a miracle? Yeah, that was pretty clearly a miracle. I can't think of any other way this happens. It's impossible. Um, and so I, I like that, that again, He's like, I can bring Israel back. Look what I did here. This is incredible, right? This is huge. And maybe Ezekiel himself is feeling discouraged. He could hardly blame the guy after seven years. Uh, and now he's found out Jerusalem's fallen. You could hardly blame him if he wasn't. Any other thoughts? All right, last one. Let's wrap it up here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. So he takes the names of two of the tribe, tribe members, right? Joseph and Judah, um, or Ephraim. And he says, right on them, this, this stick represents all the Israelites associated with him. Well, what that means is Judah, Judah's Judah, and Ephraim is what? What was Ephraim another name for? Anybody remember? Basically, northern Israel. So what he's done is he's got a stick that represents the the, the two divided kingdoms, Judah and northern Israel. So he's got a stick for Judah and a stick for northern Israel, okay? And then God says, take these two sticks that represent northern Israel and Judah, the two divided kingdoms, join them together in one stick so they become one in your hand. I don't think there's a like a miracle here. I think he's just saying hold them so they look like one stick. 
I mean, it could be, I suppose, but I don't think it is. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Again, this is how God works through Ezekiel. Do this weird thing, Ezekiel. Don't explain it. And then when they ask, then you explain it, um, which is part of the reason they probably love him. They're like, he's so cool. He always does these weird things. Um, let's go watch Crazy Zeke. So he says, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say this to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and if the Israelite tribes associated with him and join it to Judah's stick, and I will make them into a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. God says, I can take these two divided nations and make them one. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and there will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. Now, you may think this is cool, but again, I want you to see this is as impossible as anything that we've talked about so far. Not only is God going to bring back the Israelites, but now God is saying, you know that divided kingdom that has been ever since the time of Solomon that you could never take care of? I'm going to get rid of that too. It's become one kingdom. And bear this in mind, this is now 150 years after Israel fell. In other words, northern Israel has been nothing for 150 years. Over a century now, it's just been Judah. So to think God's going to collect all those Israelites who've been scattered for 150 years and bring them back and rejoin them with Judah, and then they're going to become one kingdom, this idea of unity, this is as amazing a miracle as what we just saw with the dry bones to them. They're thinking, that's crazy. And the idea that as, as Ezekiel holds it in his hand, he's able to sort of make those two sticks function as one. So God is saying, once Israel's in my hand again, they will function as one. They will be united. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then he says this again, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So there's certainly some fulfillment of this in the restoration from Babylon, but as he begins to talk about his servant David, and he begins to talk about the sanctuary dwelling among them forever, um, we actually do know that the temple gets destroyed historically again um, during the time of Rome. So those kind of statements, which become very broad and expansive, they do seem to be pointing to, again, a larger messianic prophecy. And, and there's so much reference in the New Testament to the church, to the people of God being the sanctuary of God, that that is now where God dwells. And when he says he dwells among them, he means literally, I dwell among them. And so I think that might be part of what's being hinted at here, that is there's a unity that comes in, an incredible unity, because that is another picture of the gospel that we see in the New Testament is the unity that comes not just for Israel, but for Israel and Gentiles. That that's part of what Paul really emphasizes is the gospel has produced this communal unity, which is, which is miraculous. And, and as he talks about that, he talks about how that is the sanctuary of God too. So I think there are some, some definitely some reflections here, at least of future messianic prophecies but it also has encouragement for them in the immediate future. 
Um, so that's it. That's up through Ezekiel 37. We'll pick up at Ezekiel 38 next week. It does start kind of a new theme there. So we'll talk about that next week. 38 and 39 get into what we call apocalyptic literature, which is a whole different kind of literature. And we will talk about what that means, why it's called that and why it's different and how that means we ought to read it. Um, and we'll talk about that next week. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.